Welcome to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. My name is Susan Sellers, and I will be one of the hosts for today's episode. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous support from the Naval Officer Spouses Club of Washington, D.C. The webinar team recently had Dr. Leskins present on the topic of supporting military children at risk for suicide. Dr. Leskin is a licensed clinical psychologist and serves as director for Military and Veteran Families Program at UCLA Duke University's National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. We're going to include his entire bio in today's show's notes. We are lucky that Dr. Leskin has agreed to continue the conversation and come on today's show. This is such an important topic to our community that we've decided to incorporate a live audience so that they can ask questions that are important to them as parents and educators that support our military kids. Also joining us is Nikki Harrison. A lot of you know her from the webinar team. She brings such a wealth of knowledge, not only from her experience with MSEC, but also as a parent and military spouse. I want to welcome Dr. Leskin and Nikki to the show. Thank you so much. Hi, uh, it's great to be here. Suicide is a, an important topic to discuss. It can bring up fears, embarrassment, feelings of guilt, concerns about what others might think or how other people are going to respond. But it, it could also remind us that people can sometimes do things that we can't always predict or control, but it's very important. The podcast today is really going to focus on, you know, the importance of being able to uh, communicate, check in, be aware of what our youth are currently thinking and feeling and how they're behaving and have there been any changes in their behavior um, and being able to really support them and as necessary, really be able to uh, check in and ask the youth um, if they're thinking about suicide, if they're thinking about ending their life uh, or dying. So these are very important topics. I know that they're difficult, they're complex, but it's also very important and critical that we as a community, we as parents um, have those words and know the resources uh, to be able to protect our kids. Dr. Luskin, I had the opportunity to join today's webinar, and there was so much valuable information that was shared. I have to be honest, it's a little hard to know where to start today's conversation. I will say, though, something that really resonated with me was when you were sharing the warning signs of suicide in the webinar, and some of those included mood swings, isolation, irritability, that feeling of hopelessness. And as I was reflecting on those warning signs, it, it occurred to me, you know, those behaviors could also match the disposition of a typical teenager. So as parents, how can we tell if our child is behaving like a normal teen or if maybe there's something that's really wrong that we should be concerned with? Um, thank you, Susan, for that question. And I agree that um, there's really some interesting sort of overlap between sort of some of the warning signs and what may be just normal adolescent behavior. For example, 
moodiness is is pretty common among teenagers, isn't it? We we all sort of uh, know uh, how a teenager in their development and in response to any number of factors, some of those physical, their physical growth, their maturation, all their sexual hormones coming online, um, as well as just the kinds of social and peer and activities. Sure, peers can feel moody. So how do we start to distinguish what may be just normal adolescent behavior uh, with these kind of similar warning signs like isolation or insomnia, not sleeping so much, or anxiety, irritation, isolation, some of those reactions. So that's a, it's a very important question. And I would say we need to be aware of our teens' changes in their behavior. For example, what's the context of this? Understanding what the context of this behavior is. Are, are they stressed out? Have they behaved like this in the past? Is this a kind of a more familiar response? Or are we noting some differences? So first of all, just kind of qualitatively knowing as a parent uh, how similar or dissimilar this behavior is to previous behavior. Then I'd like to understand sort of the, the length of time that this is lasting. I would expect a normal teen moody behavior to be sort of fleeting, that they're able to sort of kind of regain their sense of um, uh, connection, communication, uh, more typical emotional expression fairly soon. So I, I would be concerned, for, for ex uh, example, if that behavior continued, even worsened over the course of, say, two weeks, at which time I would be like, this has been going on for two weeks, and I'm, I'm getting more concerned about their withdrawal, their isolation, their anxiety. Certainly, some of those warning signs may require a more immediate response. For example, we talked about statements, warning signs that are red flags where the, the child or youth is actually making verbal statements about feeling hopeless, despair, unbearable pain, being better off not alive wanting to kill oneself. And those are the kinds of red flag warning signs that I as a professional or as a parent would not wait two weeks. And I'd really want to sit down with my teen or my child and understand, connect with them, talk to them and find out um, what are their thoughts? What has triggered these types of thoughts? Maybe understand that uh, better and then understand, is there a plan? Those are some kind of telltale sign red flags that I'm not wanting to sort of wait too long before I check in and find out is there a plan and maybe start to get some input from some professional opinion about the child's potential for acting out impulsively or on these suicidal thoughts. I hope sure. that covers some, some of what you were thinking about the difference between more normal, typical, maybe more common 
mood swings uh, of a maturing teen with kind of understanding what might be more uh, problematic or, or potentially harmful behavior that we want to understand more and address. Sure. No, I think that makes great sense. And in fact, I remember you specifically said in the webinar, you know, these warning signs are not a one size fit all. They're not applicable in every situation with every kid. And you may even have some children that are manifesting physical symptoms. And I know we're going to delve into how to advocate for our kids a little bit later in the conversation. But you know, you might also have that child that is not exhibiting these types of symptoms. I know Nikki had brought up a really good um, perspective when we were having a conversation about that. And Nikki, remind me, what was that in regards to the high achievers? Yeah, so I was thinking about what happens when you have that student that on the opposite side you know, isn't exhibiting those warning signs or those um, red flags that you say, but they're, you know, that high achieving student academically, they seem to be socially, you know, doing pretty well. Maybe they have some extracurricular activities that they're involved in as well. Um, and they they have this plan, you know, and they're they're chugging along. And what happens with that student? Do you feel that there should be some, you know, concern? Are they potentially at risk for those harmful behaviors? But again, aren't exhibiting those warning signs or red flags that you just mentioned? That it's a really interesting point. And drawing on uh, recent media uh, where we've seen, High achieving individuals uh, at the uh, really the height of their collegiate or professional careers, uh, completing suicide, where everything would point to success, and and we make an assumption that that they're 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 doing well emotionally. But and this is the really tricky thing: we don't always know um, how these individuals are coping emotionally? Is this achievement? Is there uh, striving for achievement? Is that, you know, coupled with some uh, challenges that they may have with, for example, their own self-esteem, their own feelings of self-worth? And can a loss, in a personal loss, or some other challenge that arrive, uh, can that present um, an unsurmountable challenge to them that results in in their their taking their own life? So yes, it it really is a uh, at times a difficult prospect. So while we understand there are warning signs, there are risk factors. There are sometimes um, you know times that it it doesn't necessarily fall in in one of these buckets. Um, so it does support. Kind of the the idea, I believe, that those who may be closest to the individuals, for example, parents or coaches or teachers who know sort of the impact of the pressure or the sort of the the results of any any setbacks, that for anyone has a child who is potentially a high achieving child or youth but may have difficulties, who understands that setbacks or challenges or even losses may trigger a response 
that they too can understand and check in and try to help or get help for individuals during those potentially very critical times. So I, I really believe that um, having this knowledge, having this awareness, understanding that suicide, uh, that individuals across the board, those that may have more visible, perhaps, set of risk factors, as well as those where it may not be as visible, it may not be as apparent, but others are aware of the potential for individuals to respond with a sense of hopelessness, helplessness, disconnection, or feeling isolated. And if that occurs, that we have the knowledge to check in, uh, ask questions, be direct, and talk about it, name it, and be able to say, are you feeling suicidal? Do you feel like you might take your own life? And can we uh, get help together? Can I help you uh, through this? I think that is such great information, Dr. Luskin, for our parents to reflect on. And in fact, we have Sarah um, joining us that has asked this specific question. Is it a best practice for parents to address suicide and suicide ideation without any warning signs from their own children? Or should they let that topic sort of come up organically? Great question, Sarah. I I come from a school that the only way we're, we as parents, we as professionals are going to know how to respond is if we ask the question. So it's better to sort of have the information on the table, be able to know what others are feeling in order to know how best to respond. Um, I talked in the webinar that even from a young age, even for starting in you know early childhood, that it, it's helpful to build an emotional literacy, to build uh, the, an expectation as part of the relationship with a child that we can discuss difficult topics, that, that the parent is a, a safe person to open up and disclose, and that, that the parent will be available and non-judgmental and open for discussions around a wide variety of life challenges and, and difficulties. So laying the framework, but even as necessary, being able to ask a child um, if there's a concern, if there's a warrant, certainly if there's warning signs to be able to check in, to be able to uh, provide and offer listening, uh, to let the child know that you're available to listen to any issue, any challenge, to let the child or youth know that uh, you're available now or at any time later also, because they may just not be ready to open up. And then to offer the support of helping the child to potentially problem solve, offer alternatives, think about, you know, uh, ways to get help, uh, to feel supported, to connect again. Maybe that it may be more practical. For example, maybe the child or or youth is is feeling burdened by too many activities, or or is 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 just moved to a new community as PCS and is interested in reconnecting socially. So, how can we help that child in those situations practically, um, it, as well as uh, I would say more therapeutic 
type of assistance as the child needs it or um, can benefit. So I, I hope I've answered your question, Sarah. It's a really good one. I don't believe that by naming it, we're harming the child or giving the child ideas, especially as it's presented in a way of the support of a safe and trusted adult. I think that's, that's the key here. So Dr. Leskin, I think that is a perfect lead-in to another question. I know you said it's it's good to have those conversations and those discussions. And so, you know, right now there seems to be a lot of glamorization within the media of suicide or suicidal ideation or even harmful acts. And so with our, our children, our youth or teens, you know, what are your suggestions for um, there's a show or if they're seeing something in social media that is showing them some of those things? As parents, you know, do we sit down and watch the show with them? Do we, does that become a prompt for a conversation? How would our parents deal with that? Uh, well, I agree with uh, your suggestions, Nikki. I really think that being tuned into uh, all of the messages, the many messages, and they may come through media, they may come through um, a peer group, they may come through uh, the games that the kids are playing. There's a lot of dialogue and narrative about you know, harmful behaviors as part of games. So there is, I think, uh, a high probability that today's youth will be exposed to some type of glamorization or acceptance of harmful behavior towards self or others. So I think we need to, as a, as a community, as a society, kind of understand that our children are receiving those messages. They're receiving messages that more than probably ever um, that there's a certain acceptance of harmful behaviors towards self or others. So I believe that the, the messages that we've been talking about are very consistent about practical suggestions for families that in, in order to sort of continue to protect our children and help them grow in very positive and safe ways that we have a responsible to, to a no which kind of uh, media that they're being exposed to. Um, how, how are they feeling about those messages? How are, the, how are they understanding those messages? What are their thoughts about it? What are their peers' thoughts about it? Um, how is it being glamorized or, or repeated or accepted and internalized? How are they thinking about it? And, and I, I think that opening that those conversations, whether it's at the dinner table or during a walk outside um, or other kind of opportunities, maybe it's taking a drive to the grocery store and it's, you know, hey, you know, I, I heard some of the things that they were saying uh, in that, that show where they were talking about, you know, people dying and, and taking their own life and people being okay as because she got shamed or something. What, what do you think of that? It was that an okay thing for, for that? And how do you think others responded to it? And was that okay? So being able to open up and, and talk about and, and also provide, I think, feedback and messages of support 
um, to counter those belief systems, like that we as a family uh, value life, value communication, value uh, being able to talk about uh, difficult topics. So uh, I really appreciate it. I would say to a uh, child, I really appreciate the opportunity where if you're receiving, you hear those kinds of messages that we can, we can talk about it too. I really like that advice, Dr. Leskin. It's practical, but yet very, very powerful. It's all about fostering or facilitating that conversation with our kids. And in addition to you know, facilitating these conversations, we also, as parents, we advocate for our kids. And I know that there is a plethora of resources. We're really blessed here in the military community that you have sponsored um, and have also put out. We're going to include those uh, links specifically to some of those resources for parents in the show's notes. Would you mind, though, perhaps highlighting one or two that you think would be particularly important for our parents? Absolutely. Well, thanks for asking me that question, Susan. Um, the the first one that comes to mind is the nine eight eight number, the crisis line. So um, SAMHSA and with help from other assets, Health and Human Services have really created a national crisis line. A wonderful opportunity to dial three numbers nine eight eight if an individual needs an immediate response to a crisis, including. Um, those involving uh, suicide. So if you're a parent um, or anyone who requires or needs, wants to talk to someone because you're in crisis or someone close to you is in crisis, uh, 988 is now available nationwide to be able to call and talk to a crisis counselor. I'd really put that at the top of my list now of resources for everyone to know about. Uh, because it it really does make accessing a crisis counselor and a response uh, very easy. I really believe that's that's great. I I know Military OneSource uh, is also a really wonderful resource, has materials on suicide prevention and uh, is available for contact and, and finding out available resources near one's base or installation. So I think those two are kind of my uh, top tier uh, go to resources, 988 number, the crisis line, and military one source. And I think you also in the webinar had shared some specific resources on suggestions on how parents can start those conversations in regards to the topic of suicide. And I think those for myself are very beneficial because oftentimes we just don't know how to start the conversation or what words we should use or what words we shouldn't use. So I do think those are as valuable as well. Debbie in the chat box actually had a question in regards to advocacy. Oftentimes, as we shared, you know, warning signs can come in different forms and different fashions, and some children may be experiencing physical symptoms that are actually related to uh, a larger picture of mental health. How do we best advocate for our kids when the intervention they're receiving seems to only want to focus on the physical symptoms of the child? Oh, that, that's a great question, Debbie, and, and I've spent a good part of my career working with primary care physicians to understand some of the underlying causes like psychological or stress or trauma that can accompany physical symptoms like 
stomach aches or headaches or or pain in the body or back aches or you know uh, that oftentimes those symptoms may not be sort of the emotion the named emotion but but actually be expressed physically or somatically. So oftentimes we will seek the care of a physician or primary care and be able to try to alleviate some of that pain. Um, and I think more and more um, we're understanding that being able to advocate for, um, help that child to verbalize, to discuss, to be able to name some of the stress, trauma, or some of the emotional difficulties uh, can also help to alleviate and promote recovery for a child that is um, clinically somaticizing, meaning they're resilient somatically in their body or having a physical ailment uh, in response to more of a psychological issue rather than an underlying physical uh, issue. Um, so I totally agree that being able to talk to a primary care physician, being able to uh, share with them uh, maybe some potential stress that the child is under that may also accompany uh, some of the physical issues, um, and as necessary, seek out and talk to a professional counselor, a psychologist, a therapist, and be able to come up with some ideas about ways for the uh, to support the child to really do process some of the that emotional that emotional content that may be very helpful. And I I totally agree with that. I would also advocate for um, I think sometimes people uh, can benefit from expressive type therapies as well some movement therapies um, or exercise, get their bodies moving too. If it is somatic, sometimes being more physical, like being able to uh, take a walk and or run or dance uh, can be very, or, and doing things that are enjoyable too uh, can address some of those physical ailments as well. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Luskin, and I feel like there's an overarching theme of communication. So for those that support our military students, what do you think is important that they understand about our kids? And do you have any extra tips on how they can go about talking to students uh, in regards to suicide? Well, thank you, Nikki. It's really such an important uh, question. I really appreciate um, all the work that MSEC does. Uh, first of all, I, I appreciate that MSEC is an organization that understands the, the needs of military children and military families. It's really born from a place of saying military families move a lot. They move from school to school and they, that can be disruptive. How do we not only help the school district and the classroom and, and the, uh, the administrators, the teachers, but the students themselves to successfully transition? And I believe that transitions are really uh, a key to understanding what one element of the unique stress that face military kids, the military kids transition, that they experience uh, separations from 
um, their peer groups. They, they can have disruptions at times from academic life, extracurricular life, sports, that sometimes these changes are, can come rapidly. Um, sometimes they're planned. Sometimes the moves are, are long distance um, and sometimes they're frequent. So how do we help military kids to um, successfully adapt to those transitions? And we know that some of the kids may need some extra help, may need some extra tip. So uh, for example, uh, MSEC has developed a student-to-student program or parent-to-parent, which I believe are some of the really great cornerstones of support for military students, really being able to understand that we don't want, you know, as a result of transition, children to feel isolated or alienated or disrupted from their goals from, you know, at a loss. We want military kids to um, thrive. We want military kids to grow and be resilient. And so that takes support, that takes connection, that takes peers who are ready to uh, help facilitate welcome and introduction and facilitating a positive transition. So I believe MSEC has done just a tremendous job creating foundations of support for transitioning military families, military kids through different schools, and being able to educate and train just so many providers and parents about these issues, the stresses. And as we're talking about today, um, some of the the challenges, even some uh, challenges that at times may be really difficult to talk about, difficult to name or bring up. And there are children in military populations and civilian populations who, for different reasons, may be at greater risk for maybe due to loss, maybe due to separation, maybe due to trauma, maybe due to other factors at risk for feeling suicidal or at risk for suicidality. So again, uh, I go back to parents being aware, in tune, communicating with both their children, having their own support. We didn't talk a lot about that. I kind of talked, touched on it, but I I believe that um, parents too need uh, networks of support, whether that's at the school or the community, their base or installation, uh, friends, colleagues, community to uh, share, talk with, feel supported, uh, a focus on, on wellness and positive activities. I think all those together are the ingredients of uh, healthy communities and ones that are aware of the potential for risks and are revisiting this topic. You know, it may not happen today, it may happen at some point down the road, but it's something that we are aware of and make effort to uh, uh, checking in and being aware of changes uh, in in our students' lives and their behavior, um, or our kids and and their their thoughts or their expressions or or the media that they're seeing. I think what you just shared, Dr. Oleskin, is is such a powerful reminder that parents are the foundation of support for our kids. And the suggestions you just shared, I really think are probably some of the most important things that we can do as a parent to help our kids to feel supported. You know, the communication, the engagement, 
um, taking action when they're exhibiting signs of risk behaviors, having those lines of communication with those that support them as well. You know, whether it's a guidance counselor, student liaison officer, there's so many opportunities out there that just tapping into them and accessing them when we need that additional support. And you bring up such an excellent point that I think as adults, we tend to kind of dismiss or not always consider, and that's our own personal well-being. What's the phrase? Put your oxygen mask on first so that you can then put the oxygen mask on on the child. But I, I do think that that has some importance here. So I really appreciate you bringing up that element for consideration. And I just want to thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Leskins. We are so grateful for the support that you give our military children and our military community. Um, we just really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Nikki. Um, I really want to uh, share how grateful I am because I feel you both are so supportive for military families, military children, that it, you inspire me uh, to continue this work. So thank you for um, just uh, your support is just tremendous. And all the MSEC staff are just uh, so amazing. Well, I appreciate that acknowledgement. And I want to thank Nikki for coming on the show today. And I want to thank our live audience. They had some wonderful questions. And I really appreciate your input and your perspective. As we mentioned earlier, we are going to be providing several resources and web links in today's show notes to include the webinar link from the recorded webinar that Nikki did with Dr. Leskin. So make sure you check that out. You've been listening to the NSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. We'd like to thank again the Naval Officer Spouses Club of Washington, D.C. for supporting today's episode. Until next time, live a great story.